Welcome to Three Ain't a Crowd, the podcast all about creativity, mental health, social change and how they interact. My name is Van de Canton and I am an artist, facilitator and researcher. Each week I'll be talking to people using creative and artistic ways to change the way we think. Today I'm speaking to none other than Oozing Gloop, which is very satisfying to say. Oozing is known as the world's only autistic green drag queen. What a title. Gloop's Glooptopia toured in the UK this year, succeeding the award-winning earlier Gloop show in Norwich and Berlin, both directly challenging the misconception that people on the autistic spectrum struggle with social imagination. Gloop offers political commentary alongside the high energy and visual theatrics of their shows and has been supportive of campaigns including those for trans rights and against deportations. Oozing Gloop, welcome to Three Ain't a Crowd. How are you doing over there in Berlin? Oh my god, I'm (laughs) fantastic. Because also as well is that we know each other right, right back at the university. Mm. so it's been a long time you know what I was actually I was working out how long it's been it's been like nine years it's it's coming up 10 it's like really full on like a decade like crazy man I don't think there's many people that I can relate to in the sense of like kind of studying political philosophy by day and taking London on at night and we definitely had a few wild nights back in the day Man, like, yeah, also as well, like, there's just something that I keep, like, just keep fucking lolling out about that fucking politics course, is that the first module, British politics, and the first thing we did was, like, the British constitution being, like, so Britain doesn't have, like, a proper constitution, but, like, EU law works as a form of, like, higher law, so it's, like, a constitution, and, like, yes, Britain could technically leave the EU and undo that, only no one would ever do that, because it would be so stupid and so complicated, so we don't need to study it. Anyway, here's a politics degree. I'm, like, Thanks, fuckers. Thanks. I I don't even remember studying the constitution. I think I've like repressed that out of my head. Oh like, my god, it was not. Awful, I do yeah. remember though, sitting outside the library with you and just dissecting the world. And it it's <laughs> such a good opportunity to kind of catch up with you again. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think maybe one of the places to start is because I was I was thinking about there's so much to talk about, and one yeah. of the the first things I think is that not everybody listening will necessarily know what drag is or what the UK drag scene is like, even though you're mm. not actually in the UK at the moment, so UK Berlin drag scene. So can you tell me how you would even describe drag and what kind of got you into it? So it's kind of really funny, actually, because sort of like, I've sort of like, because as we are, uh, as, uh, well, I have this, I'll show you now on the video that I have this tombstone tattooed on the back of my hand that says drag in it. Uh, because drag is dead. Now, I don't know how much you remember about uh, Derrida, anything. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, like, hauntology? I mean, like, every time I read Derrida, I'm like, what are you... You know what? Derrida is kind of like Deleuze and Qatari. Like, I'm reading, and I'm like, I agree with you, but I don't know what you're saying. So just (laughs) break it down. (laughs) No, yeah, totally. It's like, I'm, like, 100% vibing, but what does this mean? So, like, something Derrida talks about is, like, Hauntology, because he was like obviously all about reading and how reading is a form of communication, but you're not sort of there. It's a bit like a ghost or like the writing on the wall. And like there's loads of really interesting things about uh, this sort of context. And he sort of talks about like undead figures and stuff, like undecidable figures. And he sort of talks about like 
Uh, zombies are a really good example of this, like the undead. So they're neither like living nor dead. And I think that what's interesting with this is like with vampires, vampires sort of give up a certain aspect about being human to gain uh, supernatural powers. So they have super strength, but they can't eat garlic. Like they can turn into a bat, but they die during the day. And that's sort of how drag works, um, which is you sort of create this kind of like uh, process of this sort of like constructed sort of vehicle it kind of comes from the camp sentiment because I think that lots of queer people have to like hide their identity. So they get very, they become very well-skilled performers at controlling their reactions and things. So we sort of like create personas and then sort of like nightlife is this kind of like uh, wonderland for them. But like with the whole RuPaul process and stuff like that, I really feel that what's happening is that drag queens are going from being these like supernatural sort of figures of like the nighttime and these sorts of spaces into this far more like business capitalistic mode of like, because the thing is that often when you take a drag queen away from like the diva track and the nightclub and the moment and the stage and all these things, you kind of generally just have like a quite a problematic man in a wig. <laughs> and like, that's not something that's super, uh, always like, so, uh, I know it's not, yeah, like, obviously that's not always, like, super fucking great, is it now? But, like, basically as well, like, so, but the the UK drag, so drag has really changed a lot, and it's really changed a lot for me as well, like, my relationship to it uh, consistently, as I've been understanding myself more as a genderqueer person as well, and that drag was an outlet for me for a form of gendered expression and community, uh, because I, I find myself actually uh, more and more uh, as a disabled adult, uh, with autism, not being able to negotiate drag spaces. So for the last two years, I've been working with Arts Council funding, basically, because that's actually able to provide, like, proper support, like, access and things. And I don't work in nightclubs. I work in, like, provincial art centres um, to, like... <laughs> and so, um, so, yeah, I'm not actually the best person to ask about the UK drag scene or the uh, Berlin drag scene right now. But as it used to be in East London like nine years ago when we were both there, oh my fucking God, it was unbelievable and mental. Like it was absolutely fucking mental. Do you know what I was also thinking about um, is joiners, the joiners arms park right, in yeah, East yeah. London, which um, some people may know and some people may not. But mm. one of the things I wanted to ask what your position is on this, and I think it's relevant also if you're kind of, uh, changing the environment that you're performing or working in as well. I mean, first of all, I'm curious about why make that transition from nightclubs and bars, but also like what's your, it seemed to me, I don't know what the situation is now, but at mm. the time it seemed like a lot of LGBT spaces were being shut down or at least being threatened. I and mean, Joiners was one of them. Um, what, where is that coming from? Do you think? I mean, it's really interesting basically, right? So there was this huge like closure of like gay venues and, my dissertation that I failed to properly get to conform to intellectual standards and rigor of the academy. They were they were too conservative for my genius. <laughs> um, it was it was that was I tell you that fucking dissertation was like a bag of Fruit Loops and mixed nuts. Um, but like within that, I sort of wanted to look at these uh, these things because what is a uh, 
what is sort of endemic of the old East London scene is a term that does not have a lot of popular currency right now anymore, uh, which is tranny, which is considered very problematic in lots of ways. Uh, there's lots of trans people who do identify with it in various ways, but the point is, is that the way public discourse has changed, this word uh, has changed. And so, and our awareness of sort of like lots of issues has changed. But so it was kind of looking at the way that we change ourselves through like costumes and wigs. And this helps create this like crazy, like uh, vibe with these sorts of like social structures of like who we are, like ourselves as a structured thing. And that we do these uh, in these spaces. And within this, I looked at, uh, within the station, I looked at gay gentrification and sort of like this process basically, because there's like a lot of links between, and there's all sorts going on in it. But I think the best thing to understand is that uh, in shifting city communities, that queer people who are forced to transform their experience and take like shit and turn it into like magic and to take some old like trash we find on the street and make like a hawkature ball gown, like these consistently, it turns out, are quite good at producing value within an area, which is then extracted by developers. And that means the queer community sort of like is a part of this progression that is brought in uh, through sort of like uh, ostracization, like pe- queer people push the margins. They go to these places, they find something, they produce a value. Uh, this gets taken by developers who then turn it into luxury flats. Now that it's all like nice and stuff like that. After it's been sort of like queer people have been there, they've got like queer bash, the police have been called, like the area's been remodeled according to the law. It's become like a juridically sound place. Um, And that's really happened in East London, like a huge amount. So we lost uh, radical queer spaces of like sweat, drugs and sex, like the joiners. And we sort of lost this sort of spirit. But then other things have been created too and stuff like that as well. Mm. I I think that's the best way to sort of uh, see that in certain aspects. Mm. Like, Mm. um, yeah. Sorry, you also, I mean, keep a firm hand on the wheel here, because otherwise I'm going to like Deleuze and like Jackson Guitari, you will be like, I agree with everything that Jackson Guitari, oh my God. Um, My hand's always on the wheel. Don't you worry about that. Um, Let me bring it back to the movement, though, the transition. Like, Mm. why was that a conscious decision to move out of um, nightclubs and bars? No, I really loved it because it's it's really exciting and stuff like that. And then so the reality is, is that I find myself is that drag is sort of this whole, like, social phenomenon where there's a whole, like, linguistics to it and a language to it. And there's an understanding of yourself as, like, a creation, the way that you're gender emerges and the way who you are emerges through that, through this this culture and the the jokes. Oh my God, the jokes, the jokes, there's the layers. And so the reality is though, is that then working in like theatres in a more institutionalised space that can support disability, because obviously nightclubs like, can't support disability because they haven't got fucking any money or these things. And people are uh, often working other jobs. They're making this art in their spare time. They can't they're uh, dealing with the mental health problems that capitalism is giving to them kind of thing. They can't deal with your disabilities. So it was more that um, I was in a place where I could access this. And so I took the opportunity. And the reality is that that means I had to commit myself to it. 
So I sort of move. So I find myself away from these spaces a lot and I'll be the only drag figure within like, I know, like within the building, within the theatre, whatever kind of thing. And um, uh, which, but then uh, I also find myself getting paid like more than the entire club full of drag queens at the same time. So I can actually live my life and I can do these things then. So there was sort of like that. But this sort of came from the fact that I had to move out of London when my degree sort of like collapsed. Like um, I didn't know what was going on and I fucking just hated the institution at this point. I was like, I'm resitting, but I'm not doing it in attendance here. I'm going to finish my degree by myself back in Norfolk. I know there's space for me there. And so uh, so I moved back and then I was having to travel to get to nightclubs. And there was this, this distance, basically, was a small crack that just kind of grew kind of thing. But like, also as well, like within that, there's been so many uh, radical different art ideas and, and so many wonderful experiences. So I wouldn't change it. But that's just kind of what it is, that this this move into these things came from actually having to be a bit more like serious about my life. Cause otherwise like, I was like, I was basically just I, like, honestly, I was going to kill myself like just with the, the difficulty of it all and being back in Norfolk, you know, this place that I grew up, that university was going to save me from, it was going to save me for this normative straight place. I could be like whoever I wanted to be. And I went away and then I had to come back. And then I was like, if I don't get, this sorted out I will die and I got it sorted Mm. kind of thing Mm. so and I got a lot of help for that as well because when these things you need help and there were people who saw me and saw what I was doing and they had faith in it and they saw that from nightclubs and things so I really do owe a lot to that like uh in this sense so what what kind of what kind of help was helpful like what what made the biggest difference for you Okay, yeah, I can tell you very exactly a very specific moment that really just, like, everything came down to this. So I had the really wonderful dissertation supervisor, and she was like, okay, I get you're not going to be here, but I'm running a seminar every Thursday on Jack's Rancière, where there's a lecture, then there's a seminar afterwards. Uh, If you can get here, uh, do it. Then I got a message in my Facebook inbox from uh, East Block, uh, that really dirty, skanky, mm-hmm. methadone sex hole where, like, I got told off by the staff for, like, trying to have sex, like, 15 different times in there in one night and they still didn't kick me out. Um, and uh, and the place there, they said, look, we want someone to host our Thursday night. We want to make a Thursday night happen. We want a Thursday night to happen here. We'll give you £50 a week to host this night. And I was like... My train ticket is £35 and that's £15 for lunch. There we go. I've got my ticket to the seminar <laughs> kind of thing. So like, then, um, and I went and I, I just basically, I turned up and because to host things, you've got to be like really popular and you've got to be quite good at organising and sort of like tricking people into coming to places that are shit to help turn them into something that was good. And I was really lucky because a big group of straight people wandered in off the street. So they gave me a tray of shots and I just like entertained them all. And it was really hysterical. And then um, I spoke to the owner. I was like, look, I can't host this night uh, as a host, you know, just doing this. But I can perform. And I do know loads of performers who need spaces and they need a stage to do stuff. So I can do a performance night here that we can then use that to draw people in kind of thing. And that's how the East London Cabaret started. Now, ah. yes, this is really, really important. That was some of the actually some of the most exciting, uh, interesting work. And 
then what happened is uh, I started basically working with the the performance department at Queen Mary unofficially because I basically I got three students from the performance department at Queen Mary to help me out with this thing where they were performing at and um so they were talking to their lecturers we got invited to perform at certain other things and what happened was is someone called Katie Bard came from LADA the live art development agency uh and with Aaron who's working there they both now run like whole arts organizations by themselves they don't work there anymore but they came they saw what I was doing and they said we think what you're doing is art and we want to support that and you actually have something more to you than this dingy basement that you're on the six inch high thing like uh which you're just doing to get to this seminar like there's more to this than that and they that was really the link do you know uh, what though I've got to I've got to say one thing on this as well is that I think it's really um important that you're talking about the the academic side as well I'm relating Mm. to that a lot because that's partly what three ain't a crowd is about is like for me (laughs) being involved in music but also being an academic and finding Mm. that academia has been incredibly empowering and liberating for me in a multitude of ways like mm. why why was it so important for you to get to that seminar right because basically i fucking love rancier and my current work in glutopia lots of it comes back to rancier's books to census like it's about making this theory accessible like the way rancier works with things he's just really fucking cool and basically in a lecture one time this was evidence because i love to get high and she made me k-hole in a lecture she was like talking about the process of sense making and she's like fucking just like did this thing and then she started talking about Humpty Dumpty and I tripped balls in the middle of a seminar <laughs> you know what I'm because we're recording I'm having like the listeners can't see me but I literally yeah. feel like I'm going completely red in my face trying not to burst out laughing um yeah. you want to tell listeners a little bit about um Ron Sierra as well like in a nutshell because I think he's quite I'm a dense theorist he's very difficult to understand Yes, and he's so fucking contradictory. He would be, he would say, oh, I'm a very simple theorist, and he is, but he's so incredibly dense. Like, for him, like, all attempts to talk about what politics is, is, he says, as soon as you house politics, you evict it. And this politics is, he says that politics is nothing more than two different subjectivities coming together. And it's, that means politics is now what it was in Greek times. It was in all these different times, all these different places. It's always the same thing. Like, this process of historicization of, like, politics, biopolitics, necropolitics, these are a series of object formations that we're putting onto it, which just like the Houses of Parliament present a political process without actually being very political kind of thing. And he is just very dissatisfied. And there's this great uh, like section of his book where someone's interviewing him. And basically every single question this person asks, right, so he's like, you have got this completely wrong and you're a moron. And it's included like... <laughs> This guy is like, so you did this about this? He's like, no, I didn't do that. Not. He's just so fucking, uh, like, uh, like it's really great. And he's very political in this sense. He also has a very important piece to understanding his thought that I encourage anyone who is an educator or works in any ways to seek out because it's very readable and it's really chill. It's called The Ignorant Schoolmaster. And, mm. right, you know this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, it's I, great. I, Okay, there's some fucking gems in this, though. So basically, the thing about the ignorant schoolmaster is he basically taught people how to speak French when without speaking their language. 
basically. They spoke Flemish, he spoke French, so two different languages. He taught them to speak his language without knowing that, and then he realised he could teach people things without knowing it. So he started teaching art, he started teaching piano, and eventually, because of the pressure of the students, he began teaching law. He taught law in Flemish, only being able to speak French. Because he said, basically, or what Rancia goes, is that we've all taught ourselves something at some point. And that actually an education where it tells you to conform to a certain ideal is coming from a master place. It's coming from a master. It's about creating a worker, all of these things. It's not education. And so he um, he uh, talks about like a boy in the village who had like learning difficulties, who this guy taught him how to read and write Hebrew. And then from that, the boy learned how to teach himself things. And then he taught himself to read and write. And then he went off and got a job and stuff. And so Rancière says, from this, we can conclude that every human mind is uh, of equal or of no less or no more like intellectual value, like an IQ hierarchy. He says that basically every mind itself is, is unique and amazing. And that all that exists between them is a process of translation. Like, and what there are is there are certain translations, like pathways, like in a forest that are like well-trodden. And there are pathways that are like super, super highways and train tracks and things. And there are other translations that are like winding and deep and stuff like that. But fundamentally, it's about shifting from one to the other and in us all sharing this experience. That's really what his theory is about. And it's amazing. It's interesting you talk about translation as well, because I remember mm. grappling with Rontier's work and it's the same as like Derrida and Deleuze and Guattari yeah. and whatever. On another episode, I've, we're talking about Lacan and I, I find myself being like, you know, I consider myself a, for want of a better term, a, like a political person. Like I'm interested <coughs> in politics, not with a capital P, but I'm interested in kind of like politics on a relational level and how we have conversations and blah, blah, blah. But what I'm not down with necessarily, even though I'm an academic type, is yeah. these dense theories that kind of make things very inaccessible. Whereas mm. some of the stuff we're talking about in terms of performance art makes all of this it manifests all of this theory because it's I think I think you've mentioned it actually before mm. and I imagine you would but like the embodied experience like yeah. how do you think that performance art can be used to enable people to engage with some of these um you know quite highbrow theorists it doesn't it, it doesn't need to be highbrow you know like it, it can Not be yet. so much more versatile yeah, this is exactly what I just did with the Glooptopia, because basically the Gloop show was this thing where I got given this opportunity for funding. I just done, um, so I did two really important journeys in my life. One was called The Awful Journey, where I was getting this train ride from Norfolk to the East on the Cabaret each week, and I was feeling really abstracted from my environment. And I felt that I could never have a real life in London because I had to get the journey back to Norfolk. Um, and I could never have a real life in Norfolk because I would always go down to London. So on the journey is the only place I was manifest, but I was completely alienated. And there was this guy, this like Shakespearean clown in the 16th century, who Morris danced from London to Norwich for nine days, called the Nine Days Wonder. And I was like, this is, he was this traveling clown. I was like, this is the one person who understands my experience. So what I did is I walked from Norwich to London for nine days in full drag for Spill Festival 2016. It is a national platform. Ah, I know Spill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spill, Spill at the time was a national platform 
So the, uh, the LADA, the Live Art Development Agency, they were like, look, you need to go and perform with this. Like, you need to go do this thing. They coached me. They helped me with the application kind of thing. There, there was that, that advocacy, that institutional advocacy to give you, like, faith and investment. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang yeah. on. Let's just wind back a minute. So you walked for nine days. I, I walked for drag. nine days in full drag. So, like, for the first day, I was in Nor- Norfolk and Norwich, and I, like, just being, in, until I, like, crossed the county border of Norfolk, I felt really repressed. And then I sort of, like, started doing, like, like, go finding secret places and doing these, like, beautiful faces and things. And then I was feeling really confused over how I should be interacting with uh, people. Like, should I be trying to, like, shock the local people? Should I be trying to just pass by unnoticed, all of these things? and I couldn't deal with all these conversations, so I just started painting myself entirely green from head to toe because I had no way of washing. So I was just always green the entire time. <laughs> and like, um, wait, 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 hang on. I did not know this story. I don't know how I missed how did you this. Find but this. Is that is that when you became green? No, no, no. I was already green. But like, what's important is that autistic people uh, often or have traits of something called face blindness. So I don't like watching uh, TV shows with people in them often because it's a lot of work to understand the facial expressions uh when i'm relaxing and then someone changes their hair very slightly they get confused for who it is so i think that i really liked um looking in the mirror and just seeing a green face back in a big group of people looking at pictures and just seeing that um but also like yeah i just loved it but there's something about green that is it's color that's very natural but it's very alienating at the same time it's like i belong here but also I'm completely different from this uh, as well. And that's really how I feel in this landscape of Norfolk because we were there, uh, it was because of my father's decisions we had to grow up there. And then, uh, and his absence and his like, uh, irresponsibility. So then basically I did this journey, it was called the awful journey. It was about, because awful means boring, but it used to mean like awe-inspiring, but like terrible. And so I was like, I'm gonna do this terrible journey. Like, oh my God, because I used to call it the awful journey. Anyway, so what I did write is that then I did this for Spill and this replaced my degree. I didn't need to tell people that I got this shitty degree, whether or not I I succeeded or not like that. I had like a new partition in my life. I had a thing where I did this art experience. That's my reference point. That's how you'll understand me as this fucking next level, like ridiculous performance artist, not as this failed politics student. But what happened was, is that what you you bring into your life, obviously, you, you bring in and it manifests, basically. So the awful journey made my fucking life awful. Like, everything afterwards was, like, awe-inspiring, but just fucking dreadful. Like, it was a nightmare. So to fix it, I did another journey from the place I was born. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What, yeah, what, when yeah, you yeah. say it was awful afterwards, like, because of, was that directly linked to the journey? Was it just you know external to that no so it's like basically i use chaos magic to create change and to reprogram my consciousness in various ways at certain times and i've got a bit of a dicey relationship with it and there's it's really interesting because there's like ways that you can work with things and you can work with symbols and you can work with ideas and you can work with your deep unconscious and the thing that defines magic is it's not a scientific thing where if you do x y and z um like so-and-so will occur kind of thing. What happens is, is you do a certain set of actions and a change occurs, not necessarily because you've done those actions, but if you didn't do those actions, the change wouldn't have occurred. Like 
you wouldn't have put yourself, you, so you do something that means something to you, so you put yourself in a place to be available to like work through these things. So then what it was, right, is I did this like awful journey, and then basically everything would just start off well, it would just end up going really bad, like it would just end up being like, I would be like on a train back from London, like with my feet bleeding, having like lost all my shit and stuff like that, with like my hair looking wild and like covered in glitter with like uh, no t-shirt. <laughs> like I mean how would it did you feel safe because it I'm just thinking about like where you would have been walking through and like not knowing like who was in that town and especially being in full drag like what was the response like oh my god don't even I felt more what was great is that I not only did I feel safe I knew for a fact that I was the scariest thing out there in the night I was like, you're worried? Like, what the fuck do you think if someone's going to walk into you? Like, what do you think they're going to think? Like, bitch, like, get on with it. So I became basically this, like, haunting figure of, like, because I felt like I was haunting this place. Like, I was, like, there. I was coming through. It was never there. So I became this, like, haunting figure. And, like, basically then I just sort of became this kind of, like, I would always go down to, like, do things and, like, in, like, the best possible way. And events would always end up taking a turn to the worst possible outcome. But it was fucking dramatic, bitch. It was drama. It was, like, fabulosity. It was, like, jaw-dropping and unbelievable, but horrible. Because of a because I'd sort of done this thing and I had this new sort of confidence, but I would just drive things into this, like, really, like, intense sort of, uh, like, goth area and stuff, like, goth area, so I managed to find But, like, no, like, this kind of, like, this sort of, like, it would just get really really down to the wire man like you know when you're in situations with people and like it all gets a bit like messy and stuff like that and then you look back and like oh, mm. that was stressful like everything was like that for a year and it's because I basically felt that there was like a lot of stuff I hadn't dealt with as to why I was here in the first place so then to change it I did the awesome journey which was the exact opposite and I went from where I was born to the place of my father, which is South Scotland. And then I traveled all the way to the top of the Northern coast of the UK. And I threw myself from John of Groats into the ocean. I rebaptized John of Groats, Jane of Groats. So the UK is transitioning. And that is why I've got a lot of stress going on right now. But, um, but then with that, then I basically was really uh, available. After doing this, I had like sorted through all my shit and stuff like that. And these people I'd worked with before, uh, had me the opportunity to get Arts Council funding. And I was just like, I'd been like really resistant to this beforehand because you've got to like give them a very clear idea and you've got to conform to this hierarchy and it's got to be like, you know, nice and neat and coherent and capitalistic and compartmentalised and like a, a beautiful package that they would have blah, 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 blah. And instead of like getting a fucking bug up my ass over all of that, I just said, okay. And like, I basically just gave them this idea that I wanted to explore. And it's called like, profane geometry and it's this rhythm that goes three 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 two two Mm -hmm. so this is something that like i tapped out this rhythm like every day on my hands like because it's what uh it's called a stim like social like self-stimulation that autistic people do like autistic people have little rhythms and routines and motions they do that ground them in certain places that they do compulsively um and i was like I was like, this means something. Like, this is attached in certain ways. So I found, like, various, like, books and all sorts of different things that talked about this idea that they would always have, like, three things sort of related to each other. But there would be, like, these two twos that sort of produced this, like, binary matrix where we'd always have, like, two, uh, 
like lots of theorists sort of like talking about contradiction and coming out with three options. And I just saw this pattern again and again and again. So I made a fucking show about it. But it was just basically too complicated. It didn't really like hit the mark and people just did not understand what was going on. And by basically. So then I got the chance to make a second show. I called it Glutopia. It was not about critique. It's about what I wanted to see in the world. Okay. And for that, what we did or what I did is I created a new utopian theory called Communocracy, which is communist democracy. Right. Go on. So, like, basically, rather than, like, having to, like, go through all of this, like, stuff and explain all these theorists, is that I created this idea of communocracy, which is, like, we have a few functioning utopias right now. Like, the first utopia is the idea capitalism can just continue and the world won't end. And we know this isn't true. Like, it's going to melt the ice caps, it's going to kill the bees, like, capitalism will end the world. Um, It has to change. And then we've isolated ourselves from all metrics of social change. We have destroyed left-wing solidarity and all these things. So there's a narrative of a utopian change coming out, which is like the populist fascist one of like Brexit, of like Trump, of like these sorts of ideas that we can go back to how it was and they sort of mobilise these old things because it's a way of making change kind of thing. And so we really sort of need new utopian ideas, which is not to say something that has to happen, but like an ideal to go for as well and it feels like words like communism are there's they're so tainted and words like democracy don't mean what they're supposed to mean anymore like democracy means rich people doing whatever the fuck they want you know rancio says democracy is the rule of the part that has no part (laughs) like it's the idea that people without qualification (laughs) boom boom like um it's this idea that people without qualification should be in charge collectively rather than, say, people with qualification, which is just like Boris Johnson, who is, like, white, male, old, rich, and from, like, the vested powers. And he's obviously a clueless idiot, but he's got these markers that allow him to just move through uh, into the structures of authority, and we just accept that, because we don't understand our democracy, and we don't relate to it. And going back into complicated democratic theory is useless. So I created this idea of, like, this pop-cultural thing of, like, communicracy, communist democracy which is neither communism nor democracy it's never existed before so it can't you know and it's also as well as that then we have to define it ourselves so we have to have a discussion from the very grassroots level in the idea uh, of this and that basically the whole show was about just presenting this idea kind of thing which like well, I mean you say yeah. just presenting this idea but it, I mean in some ways it's it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at earlier in terms of like actually mm. revolutionary politics, if you want to call it that, yeah. can be on a much more individual yeah. relationship to relationship level. It doesn't have to be this, uh, you know, vanguard or whatever. I'm slightly aware that we're leaning into lefty chat, which is probably quite alienating as we talked yeah. about before. Um, but I mean, I'm really interested in how you communicated that. I mean, that's not, I, I mean, how did that happen? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So basically, right. is that I basically is because there was, I remember like I was walking around the Norwich Ring Road and I was like reading something where they were talking about, should we invent new terms or should we try and redefine old terms? And basically um, they said these old school, these old theorists were like, if we just abandon these terms, we abandon people's struggles for them. But Slavoj Žižek says the proper revolutionary answer to do you want tea or coffee is yes, please. Like, yeah, I don't when, get that. 
like tea or coffee yes please or it's just like you know for example when I'm walking down the street and someone asks if I'm a man or a woman I just like to say yes like it's like basically is like I'm it's like I'm accepting both of these things because I'm pushing them together like and I'm not like staying in this space with you where you're giving me this or that because fuck you because that's actually just keeping you playing your game like and being aware of people's games and the power structures that people are playing is part of the revolutionary task it's not who's got the best lefty chat because also lots of people use this lefty chat to basically just be a more holier than thou morally superior arsehole yeah totally right so no fuck off like I think you can just tell from the way someone makes you feel as to whether or not they're being on a level with you kind of thing yes that I think that <laughs> right there is yeah. it how it makes you feel that is absolutely yeah. because you know what I mean again like I'm I'm feeling quite excited because a lot of what you're yeah. saying is exactly what this podcast is is trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. grapple with like how do we not compartmentalize but how do we allow ourselves to be all these aspects and how do we allow politics to come into performance and mm. and how does that have an impact on our identity and whatever it is and how is our identity fluid and blah 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 so I mean a lot of what you're saying is mm. I think really really fascinating um mm. thank you compliment yeah just I mean when are you writing a book well this is just it is so basically what I did write is that um during the show is so what we do as well is to get into comicracy we first look at something. So the show starts off with like, because uh, also as well, I, I accepted a commission for a touring show after making one show. So I made one show that was the result of like 10 years of work, like 10 years of cabaret practice and these huge like journeys and all these things and stuff like that. And I was like, this is the truest shit it possibly can be. And I put all this into it. And I, then I made this one show and it was like, uh, they spoke to me and people put me on a level and they said, look, you don't have the level of artistic context you need at this point in time to be able to do a tour for this show. You need to work with more venues. The best way for you to do that, actually, is that we've got an option for you to make a new show. It's going to put you in touch with, like, six more venues. That's going to give you ten people you can talk with. You've got four right now. You've, you've, used, all your, you've used all your tokens. Do you know what I mean? You need this to be able to make this happen. And then you'll have two shows that you can then, that's going to put you in a really good place. And they were right. But they did say, you just made one show. Obviously, you don't want to make another. And I'm like, oh, of course I can make another show without any problem. That's fine. No, bitch. No. It was a nightmare. Like, my autism fully exploded because my life changed dramatically in two years. But also, I've... Also, I had my Saturn's return. Do you know what this is? No. Your Saturn return? Your Saturn return. It's like an astrological... What, is that like a horoscope thing? It's fully a horoscope thing. But it's like... I'm, I'm telling you, it's real. It's real. You know, I'm not convinced. I'm already not convinced. Go on, try. I like this. I like this because yeah, no, because whenever someone says like, "Look, I I swear to you," before they even give you the evidence, they just say, "I swear to you, it's real." That automatically is like, no, (laughs) no, bullshit. Now, what it is, right? When you're about 28 or 29, Saturn comes round to the place in the sky where it was where you were born. So it's called your Saturn's return. And so Saturn is this fucking planet. It's just this nightmare. So basically, your Saturn's return... Hang on. It already doesn't make sense because like, people... No, wait, wait, wait. Because when you're 28 or you're 29, like everyone 28 and 29 at a different point. So how is this like one planet just like... Because it's like on a cycle. Around? It's like, because well, that's what planets do. They keep coming back around. Like the solar system doesn't work on straight lines. Yeah, whatsoever. but it would just be like... <laughs> it would just be like endlessly... 
in one point because everyone be turning 29 all the time. No, it's like, basically, look, it's planets and shit. The point is, fucking Saturn is like an arse and an ass hat. And what it is, right, is that people generally have a crisis at the end of their 20s. And it's called your Saturn's return. So if it's because of astrology or because we just have crises at the end of our 20s, where we're like, holy shit, I'm not a kid. I'm becoming a full-on adult. And uh, my youthful good looks aren't going to let me coast on by. And I can't just be cute. I actually have to work for my life. And I have to figure out who I am and what I'm doing kind of thing that's your Saturn's return and it's a nightmare like it's this year it's this process where you're just like oh let, let me pick up on this a little bit though do yeah. you do you think that that is something that a lot of people experience to a particularly severe extent or do you think that certain people are vulnerable to that whether or not it's about horoscopes or you know socioeconomic circumstances whatever mm. do, you, do you know what I mean like do you think that that is something that's just intrinsic to I mean that age like because if you think about it the only reason why that age would be so troubling mm. is because of external circumstances anyway because like back in the day surely it would have been like that and returned at like 14 do you know what I mean or, or then it could have been like do, do you see what I'm mm-hmm. saying like how do you think that that is something that everyone goes through or are some people more likely than others? I think some people are definitely more likely than others because supposedly, like, your your alignment in your way, your elements are influenced by the gravitational pull of yada, yada, blah, 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 like, blah, like, whatever it is. And so some people are more affected, but it's like, I've seen, it's like, I've spoken to people about it and uh, I've seen it and it's a useful metaphor that we can, and star signs are useful metaphors that we can use to understand the world. We can use star signs to understand personality types and interactions. They don't necessarily have an exact foundation that is scientific, but they still have something useful in like a mode of communication in a sort of kind of like a folkloric kind of way, in a sort of like, because even though we are saying one thing, often there's another emotion or experience that's coming through with that. And it's a shared language that we have basically. There's really deep within our culture that we all grow up hearing these things and stuff like that in various ways. So. Mm. Do you know what my concern is? My concern is that anything that deviates from, okay, maybe that's a little bit. um, I fucking love it. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. No, but I'm just trying to think of like the words that um, I mean, like it just sounds quite definite when I'm like, this is what I'm concerned about, but it is partly I'm, I'm cautious of anything that detracts Mm. from the material circumstances that lead to people feeling like shit. Do you know what I mean? And my issue with Mm. horoscopes is that it starts to become this like um, almost like something that's completely independent of your material condition as if it's just something that you can't take control over or that it's just an accident and actually I don't I think everything is constructed right and and maybe we need to think about well why is it that at 29 there's so much I don't know pressure or what whatever it is um Mm. and and that is the sticking point but if we use horoscope then maybe we just end up getting into this cycle and we're like okay but you know the moon Mm. will change and I apologize if anyone's listening and they're just like Vanda you're being outrageous but you know gotta be done no I love it I love it the the moon is going to change and then everything's going to be fine although I'm very susceptible to the moon I must say see Um, there we go there we go see yeah totally no madness yeah no totally I get really like with it as well. What it is basically right is that if we didn't have such uh, violent material conditions, this process wouldn't necessarily be a crisis. If we were like living in a society 
where we valued our spiritual growth, our personal growth, our emotional growth, and our and we provided space for moments for us to uh, interact with each other and reevaluate those. Uh, this wouldn't be a crisis. This would be like a great time of reflection and growth and all these things. Mm-hmm. But we don't provide space of support so that when you have this maturing process within this society characterized by a division of labor, where it's like, where it wants you to be young, it wants you to be a permanent teenager, it wants you to always be beautiful and then to desire these things. Um, and to trap you in something impossible, to deny your body's aging and its decay in this sense, that then these things become really stressful. And like, it's also as well that then people obviously, just like with Lefty Chat, people use horoscopes to escape their actual responsibility to change and the responsibility to have to people around them in that sense, where it's like, it's all very well and good that this says this, but what are you going to do about it? Mm. Kind of thing. You've got to really like, be applying it and stuff like and so I went through this process during like this thing where I was like I was working because I accepted this money for this second show and I was like I actually don't want to be making this style of stage show I think there's other ways to use performance art that's more radical more political and more exciting um but then I accepted money to do something that wasn't that that was this one show that was going to be a touring show so it'd be the same show every time script scripts I don't use these like but if you want to work with a team of people, you've got to have some kind of shared consensus. And mm. so for me, there was a big working out, uh, a big working out of that during this process. Um, but also as well, like basically it, it, like within it, like there was a lot of things that were like difficult, but also as well, I had to find a way to take responsibility for it. Like, and also take responsibility for myself within conditions that are fucked as well. To then create something that was going to sort of like, give people a moment of like relief or like soothing or that would share this spark of like this delight and joy and the idea that things can change. Like that's the most important thing. I think as a queer autistic person who's been trapped in so many different situations of like incredible like pain and confusion with no real words for this at the time, no like hope and no chance of escape that people have consistently supported me and found ways to support me because of their their love, their care, changes of the law, changes of our understanding, and showing me again and again and again that things we can do for each other can really radically improve our lives and they can just change it for the better, kind of thing. Like so things can change. Yeah, like things can change. And it's like it just it seems big and scary. So people don't want to deal with it with this idea. Mm. But it can always change. There's such a um a powerful undertone throughout this conversation of change of transitions of journeys and it's really cathartic to to hear and I think that that um I'm going to say dialectic that kind of um openness and the the rushing of all these different I mean you're talking about pathways Mm. and all these different avenues it is just um I think it's really uh really optimistic in such a beautiful way because it isn't pushing this toxic positive narrative but it's more um full I would say on that note I'm going to ask you um a question which is not so full um and it's slightly vapid uh, in relation (laughs) to your question but it is um also just before I do tell you this do you know the first ever drag show I went to I was about I must have been about 13 14 Oh and God. the queen told oh me that I looked like a sugar babe on acid. And oh I think about that like every day. I shouldn't even be saying that because now oh my like, God. Oh my God, you actually do look like a sugar babe on acid. I was oh 
Do you know what though? I have to say, despite my protestation, I loved it. I loved it. Oh my God. <laughs> Laughing because it's Ooh, true. Baby, yeah? you like a hole in the head because of you, boy. Such a book, like, and then just like you're like blasting your mind away with psychedelics, just kind of like. <laughs> I mean, sugar babies on acid. That sounds like well, th- that, those are my weekend plans sorted. I should like, I should have put my Twitter name as that, sugar babe and acid. Boom. Oh my god, you totally should. You totally. Oh my god, that's amazing. Like, yeah, I might do it. I might do it. Anyway, moving on to my my uh, vapid question. Vapid question. It Give is me the time. Question. Always got to have a vapid question. It is time for what's the three the variation of the question that I am asking everybody, and this one is partly a projection because I I want to feel left alone in my own. Mm. Uh, darkest hours so mm. speaking of the moon and darkest hours my yeah. question to you Ethan Gloop is what three things are you most likely to be googling at midnight oh this is good and interesting and tricky right googling at midnight in a full moon or not um both no well you've got three so you can choose you could have like one full moon, one half moon, one. Oh, it's like a Jaffa cake advert. What's the, what's the like, full moon, half moon, Jaffa cake? Oh my one God. Jaffa cake moon. Oh my God, I haven't had Jaffa cakes in so long. Okay, so. Me perhaps... neither. I had to do it in mindfulness and then I went off them after that. <laughs> I think, yeah, maybe. So perhaps like basically, well, you know, like the history of Jaffa cakes, to be perfectly honest. Like I love going on these, like, be like, this is. Like, what the fuck is this thing in my life? Like, I don't know, Jaffa Do chickens have tongues? Do chickens have tongues? I mean, yeah, they... what did people do before Google when they had all these questions? That, I mean, I'm saying midnight. It's more like midnight, 1am, 2am, 3am. Do your chickens have tongues? I must know. Do chickens have tongues? Yeah, no, I like to, no, I like to take things. I like to, like, find out the history of, like, common things and have, like, a really good, like, like dig around and stuff. So that's enjoyable because like something random will like bug me that I don't know something about something. And I'm like, this is part of me. It's part of my history. I need to know. And it's like, this is here. So then also I'd say definitely then the second thing would be uh, song lyrics to uh, Bonnie Tyler's Total Clips the Heart, which no, I pretty much know them, but I like just read them sometimes. Or like a particular Tracy Chapman song that I'm trying to learn lip sync to. Mm. Like, I do a really great number to Baby Can I Hold You Tonight, where, nice. um, yeah, because it's like the softest, most tender song, but like, I like to walk out completely naked, uh, in full makeup, uh, with nothing but a roll of brown parcel tape, and then I tape myself up from the ankles all the way to my tits in the most, like, aggressive use of stationery you've ever seen on stage, and it's like, really intense, and then it does this, like, tender song of not being able to communicate, and it's just great. <laughs> So like, yeah, definitely. And then a third one would definitely be something on perhaps Google Images because I just like to see this big sort of like array of things and like associations and sort of like mm. to to pick through them. Oh, and I, to which I'd probably say actually uh, the place that tarot cards have on the Tree of Life. Wait, what was the first bit of that? What about uh, the place tarot that, cards? Yeah, the place that tarot cards have on the Tree of Life. Ooh. So, yeah, so I'm a very well-versed tarot card reader, which is a, is a language of symbols. Do not read my tarot cards. I don't want to know. Yeah, I no. don't want to know. Not that I believe to... in it, but... 
Now, what it is, right, is that basically there are a set of symbols where it's a card game that's used to create conversation with the unconscious mm. and a conversation between two people that is psychotic and it makes no sense whatsoever. And people are like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. And there's, like, this like this system called the Tree of Life that is part of the Kabbalah and all this shit. And it's like a ancient thing. And the way that you can memorise the tarot is that you memorise this shape and how all the things interact. But, like, I always forget little details and stuff. So I like to get real nerdy with my tarot cards. Probably at the full moon. Probably with a bottle of red wine. And a bit of Googling. Love it. And a bit of Googling. Ooh. My my final question um, yes. before we wrap up, I must not forget... Um, can you tell us where can people find out more about you? Where are you at on social media, etc.? Oh my gosh. So my Instagram is amazing. Uh, it's uh, very effortless uh, and like low stakes, but also like done with excellent taste, uh, in my Agreed. opinion. Yep. And uh, yeah, someone with excellent taste, I should know. Um, <laughs> like, uh, like there's this, and then also I have a website, but it's just naff, but it's oozing group. Like it, I need to sort it out. But if you really want to see my actual art that, like, I really like, my favourite art that I like, is you need to go and check out my Vimeo. And that is where I have some art films that I've made, uh, including a full-length, 50-minute-long uh, feature piece called uh, Gloop the Movie, all made entirely with photo booth. And, like... Really? Yeah, it's all made with photo booth. And so, basically, like, of this sort of three-year process between, like going through these different, like, these different journeys and, like, going out and, like, just, like, taking some time to orientate myself before ultimately deciding what I wanted to do, which is I moved to Berlin because I got a boyfriend. And, like, um... <gasps> Didn't know that. Yeah, no, that's... that Basically, that, that was... Right. Yeah, I was like, oh, I could live in Norwich or I could try and move back to London or maybe I could move to Berlin. No, that would never possibly happen. And then I, like, I fucking just found a dude and I was just like, I'm in love. Bye! And, like just then took all this like all these like really messy experiences about being really confused uh that I needed someone to witness and that person was like my camera basically I just took this and I sped the whole thing up by 500% so that there's like the first five seconds each one is turned into one second and there's a huge montage of everything I did over three years shoved together yeah and like whenever I feel a bit of doubt about myself I always like go back and I just watch that I'd be like this is where you're coming from mm. but yeah that's the place that all my really cool stuff is but other than that just no totally insta using glue and uh I think I'm going to be googling glue the movie tonight that will be fab <laughs> full moon or not full moon or you not you are on instagram looking for oozing you can also find me at vandercanton that's w-a-n-d-a and my website is vandercanton.co.uk thanks for listening to three in a crowd with banda and oozing gloop thank you so much for oh being a part of this i oh. feel like we could go on for so much longer I, I yeah 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 i'm here for six hours durational like just i days. literally got so much going on in my mind that i might have to keep picking your brains about um absolutely and, and watch this space yeah uh, in, in the meantime don't forget to leave a rating and comment on itunes or wherever you're listening as this will help other people to find us and if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe and keep up to date as episodes are released We will see you next time.